everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray, and I'm here with Drew Stedman. And you are tuning in to week three now as we've been exploring ideas like the misuse of power and power differentials and relationships. Last week, we talked in depth about concept creep, probably our longest episode yet, but one uh, worthy of the length because of how nuanced and complex it is in our culture. So we're going to pick back up here week three. Drew, why don't you kick us off? Great. So, if, you know, if you tracked with the first two weeks, first of all, I'd encourage everybody, please go listen. These are all designed to go together. And part of why we did such a long episode last week was didn't feel like we could break it up and not have some of the appropriate balance that was needed. I'm not going to repeat all the disclaimers we've already given about just acknowledging the deep sensitivity of everything we're saying. Um, what I will say is our goal with this is not to say that we have thoroughly analyzed and come to the right conclusion about how we th- should think about it. Our goal is to interject something where I would hope that the next time you're reading something or talking to someone, it gives you pause when these type of things come up about power, psychological terms like narcissism or abuse or things like that, that cause us to ask the question, how is this being used? What is this meant to convey and what's going to be most helpful? And I don't claim to be the expert in any of this. What I am doing is saying this needs to be a more thoughtful conversation And there's a lot right now in pop culture, a lot being written, a lot being said that I'm worried about the way that it is happening. And I hope what we can do is be discerning in how we understand these conversations rather than just repeating the stuff that we're hearing. So that's my goal here. And you may come to some different conclusions and and there are different nuance and there are so many different scenarios where each one, I could fully see there being a situation out there where maybe our thoughts don't perfectly help. And so please uh, give us grace for that. And and we are sorry if that is the case. It's not going to be perfect for every situation. But at least what I think it can do is maybe add a balance to a conversation that's taking place. Um, I mentioned last week that I talked to three different people, some of whom I I disagree with ideologically, but are all way more knowledgeable and are PhDs in this field and all of that. And what was interesting was the number of them that encouraged me to do something about, like say something. Basically, their point was, this is not being talked about enough. And so I actually had two people on very different sides of the ideological spectrum. Both tell me, I'm really glad you're taking this on because we feel like this needs to be a conversation that needs to be had. Not because we're the experts, but because we're raising the conversation. So that's what I hope happens with all of this is that it makes you think and makes you analyze. And even if you land differently than where we've landed, totally okay. would love to hear your thoughts and ways that you might think differently. We're fellow learners and not claiming to have it all figured out. So again, we highly recommend if you haven't listened to the last two episodes, please pick those up first because this third episode will build on those concepts. Uh, So today we're going to look at uh, or address the question, you know, what's the cause of our culture's significant decline in emotional health and where is it appropriate to assign blame? So Drew, what what would you say to that as a starting point? So here's a wild thing that anybody listening, you can go Google, look at mental health rates and statistics in the United States. And you can drill in, like look at depression and anxiety. I think it's like 35 to 40% of Americans deal with this. And you can see, and you actually can see as you get to age cohorts that it's increasing over time. There's a lot of research being done on college campuses where it's like 25, 30% increases 
year over year of the number of incidents that they have. And a lot of that research was actually done prior to all the stress of COVID, which is only going to add to it. And it really, truly is a mental health pandemic, not to use the word that's way overused these days. But if you look at the rates, you look at the prevalence, and you know, I, I saw something just even during COVID, the number of overdoses that have taken place. So there's just a lot of indicators. For the first time in a century, the life expectancy of Americans declined. And all of it was self-harm, mental health, you know, whether that is drug and alcohol addiction, suicide, things like that. You know, there's so many different factors out there. Now, I part of my nerdiness in life is I care about responsibly using statistics. And I'm totally the person that will always fact check what somebody says and do a little digging. So please do that. I will say, I, I think a if I was going to critique my statement, there is a big question. How much of what we're seeing in culture is an awareness of mental health issues where people who suffered in the past but were stigmatized and didn't get the help they needed, now, because of the conversation, feel free to go get the help. And I am sure that that's part of what we're seeing. However, there are enough other statistics that indicate this is bigger than that. The one I cited a second ago, but all the stuff related to addiction, self-harm, things like that are a great indicator where where those are going up, that's not just because people are more aware, that's actually because more people are suffering. I actually heard Mark Sayers recently talk about how Britain has a, a minister of loneliness because depression and anxiety related to loneliness is such an, an uh, such a rampant issue in Great Britain that they actually have a, gover- a governmentally appointed minister of loneliness. I just think that's an incredible fact to cite about Western culture and society right now. Yeah, the loneliness rates are the most wild one. And that's where if I had to pinpoint any one that concerned me the most, I think that the staggering number of people that are alone and lonely is wild. And you look at this where you have a lot of different cultures throughout human history that objectively have faced much more difficult things than most people in a modern Western industrialized society have faced. But for some reason, they seem to be a lot more resilient. And that's going to be a key word that we introduced today. They're able to cope with it. Now, of course, some of that is they don't have access to care. And so I'm sure many of them deal with trauma or other forms of mental health disorders and are just not getting the treatment and often are even getting further isolated because people don't know what to do with them. So that is also occurring and certainly is worthy of our attention. However, there does seem to be something about people's ability to cope. So if you were to just take a step back and analyze our society, there are quite a few trends that are out there that I believe we need to pay attention to. And then how this integrates with our conversation from the past few weeks is one thing I think we could objectively say is that increasing numbers of people are feeling some form of psychological distress. So the question is why? In some of the research I've seen, it certainly seems as people get younger, the younger age cohorts experience this at greater level than the older ones do. So at the very least, this trend is not slowing down and potentially is increasing from millennial to Gen Z and on down the line. So there is something about our culture that is leaving people with a very low level of resiliency to be able to deal with difficult things in life that I believe then spills over into all types of other outcomes that are unhealthy. And I've I've presented some of the few on the more extreme end, but also how that impacts our relationships. You know, if I'm lonely to begin with, I have low resiliency as a result of that and other factors. Then in my human relationships, I, I actually don't have the tools I need to work through difficult things, which perpetuates me being even more lonely, which over time leads to a really negative cycle that is going to certainly impact my mental health, my spiritual health, my relational health. 
And so where do we go to the root of this? And I, and I think where there might be simplistic answers, you know, tying this back in with last week where somebody might pinpoint, you know, a boss they had, a pastor they had, somebody they had that they didn't like the way they were led. And so they can pinpoint a lot of blame on that person. And, you know, sometimes very fairly, sometimes that person didn't do well. But I think we also have to say, you weren't the first person in human history to have a bad boss or a pastor that wasn't sensitive. So why is it that we are incapable of working through all of that? And again, that's a very general statement. Certainly there are certain situations where it's so extreme, where it totally makes sense. But I think as a general principle, we just don't have the tools emotionally to deal with difficult things that we probably need ultimately so that we can lead people into health that God has called us to. And let me give another plug for a book. I talked about this two weeks ago and then a couple episodes uh, in the past, but The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, Greg Lukianoff, and I think it's uh, Hate is the other, uh, H-A-I-D-T is the other author. They diagnose this at length and they look at the concept of resiliency and they look at primarily college campuses, but they go back even deeper into parenting trends. And uh, it's an insightful book. And it's a very easy, very accessible read. Uh, It's a short read, but uh, certainly sheds light on some of these topics. So if you want to dig deeper, I would recommend picking that one up. Another great resource, uh, shout out to our friend Silas and Steve, who have a podcast called Resiliency where this is their whole thing they're going after is how do we help people build resiliency? And it's geared towards different Christians working in in different environments, but a lot of their content is going to be helpful and accessible. And you can get on, look at their podcast, look at their different episodes. Some of them might be specific to people living in a cross-cultural setting, but others I think would be applicable to just about anybody. But this is is their thing. And and really it was in my conversations with Silas who brought this up of, of looking at resiliency as a significant issue for us to address. Another way of looking at this is symptoms versus disease. Uh, Now, of course, as a Christian, the ultimate disease is sin. So I I affirm that, I get that. But maybe in some of the modern manifestations of what we're running into, we see a lot of symptoms, in particular in the ways that people are trying to navigate relationships, the pain they're experiencing in relationships, and an inability to work through difficult relationships. That is a symptom, and you know certain symptoms absolutely need to be treated and analyzed, and that's a lot of what we talked about last week. But then what we also have to say is, where do these symptoms come from? And I'm not suggesting that this is the only one. Of course, there's other factors, cultural factors, ways of doing organizations that are embedded into our cultures, all types of things like that. However, I think this concept of declining resiliency and trying to figure out where does that come from is certainly... A deeper than just a symptom, but is one of the potential causes to a lot of what we're seeing in culture. Yes, yeah, so what I what I hear you saying, Drew, just from a macro level, is that we have kind of an epidemic of a lack of resiliency and declining emotional health in our country. And I think it's appropriate to both talk about the potential ways to mitigate against that, but that requires looking at then what are the root causes and. So maybe tie this into the broader concepts of, the, of these past three episodes, and where where does this tie into uh, relationships and the, the themes that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks? Great. So let's say you and I have an argument, and let's say we're in a scenario, and let's use an example. Let's say I'm a I'm a pastor because that's my world, and you're a member of a church, and we get into a dispute, and I am in a conversation with you, whatever the cause of it. And I express what I believe to be is something that needs to be shared on my side, but that hits you in a way that causes you some form of emotional pain, and that has a negative effect in your life. Now, that's a normal scenario, but then the question is, because that caused you emotional pain, was I as the one who brought something up with you at fault, or 
is the fact that it caused you an emotional pain, the result of your own lack of a resiliency, or is it a combination where you were not as resilient as you probably need to be to be able to handle a diff- difficult conversation, but I, as a pastor, did not handle it well and have enough awareness of you and where you are at, and so my lack of sensitivity or even my little bit of fleshliness or impatience or whatever the case might have been actually contributed to some of that emotional pain, right? So you have the same outcome of we had a conversation, you left that conversation experiencing emotional pain, but the reason that you have that pain could have a lot of different causes. I think I've seen some people talk about where it's almost like anybody who has a negative experience or has a negative conversation, regardless of how well the conversation was happened, the fact that they had a negative conversation is proof that therefore there's a problem with the system. Now, of course, you could go to the other side where somebody who has a conversation and anytime you know somebody confides in them afterwards, it was really painful for them, they assume it was the other person's fault. And this is the messiness of human relationships. So what do we do with all of that? And I think we have to be aware, and this is where this conversation is so layered and so difficult. However, what we do need to recognize is that it seems like, as a general principle, our collective capacity to deal with difficult things is declining. And that, therefore, is exacerbating some of these relational problems that we've seen. I'm not saying that this is the reason for every relational problem. In fact, I know of several stories of people who are extremely healthy and were up against a very unhealthy, dysfunctional environment, and they did their best they could, and it just ended up being very painful for them. So this is not meant to be a blanket scenario, but I think it does accurately speak to a societal trend. And this is where anytime I hear a story, so I'll just take any number of the different popular podcasts that are out there. I always am aware there's multiple sides to this story, and all of us experience a relationship by definition through the lens of our own life. Um, I can't experience what you experience in our relationship. So in the experience I just said, I only know the way that it impacted me. I can work very hard to do the best I possibly can to understand how it impacted you, but at the end of the day, there is going to be a gap there, and two different people could go to the same conversation and walk away with a very different understanding of what that conversation was. And then if you throw on that an underlying lack of resiliency and emotional health, that just adds so much more to it. So this is one of those factors that we need to be aware of that's influencing us. And both from a pastoral perspective, I want to be aware of that and do what I can to try to help mitigate that as I'm working with other people. Jesus calls me to help people and not just to help the people that are emotionally healthy. And so I I want to do everything I can to maybe even adjust some of the ways that I'm going to interact as a shepherd to account for this. But the flip side of that is it also means I have to recognize that a lot of difficult emotional circumstances are very, very complicated, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And especially when I hear stories, I mean, I hear people all the time, you know, they'll come, they come from another church and they'll tell me how bad their past church was. And of course, that was their experience. So there's an, there's one side of it of being able to empathize with their pain, but there's another side of it is recognizing, you know what, there's another side to that story too. And most likely it's a lot more complicated as far as to what all happened. And that, that tends to be the truth. Great. So what I hear in a lot of that, Drew, is this, again, this theme, we've talked about this uh, a little bit earlier, but this theme of intent versus outcome or intent versus impact. And uh, I think nowadays we tend to measure a lot of our relational uh, exchanges through impact. Certainly, the more removed we are from interpersonal communication, meaning you know, whether the medium is social media or something like that, where we are removed from the, the deeper human interaction. And we tend to, again, we judge somebody based on the behavior or the impact, and it's harder to gauge the motivation or the intent. And that's where 
relationships get far more nuanced is really dialoguing to the point where you can parse out intent and deal with the impacts and work that through uh, through just a you know normal conflict resolution process or a dialogical process. But that, that seems to be a recurring theme that, that comes up uh, both in the concept creep and then now today talking about resiliency in relationships and relational systems. So could you kind of tease that out a little further, maybe give some examples uh, around that, th- those themes? So let's say, Mick, that you and I have a relationship where we are experiencing conflict and you walk away from an exchange that we have, maybe where I say something to you that's confrontive or challenging to you. And it causes you a lot of distress where it really sets you off in a very negative way. And maybe that's even a pattern in our relationship. So right there, that should, you know, that's obviously a red flag, and that's cause for us to need to pause and get down to what's going on. But that alone doesn't tell us a lot about how to address a situation because the issue could be that I just have very bad interpersonal skills or I am not using, maybe I have more power in the relationship, I'm not using it well, maybe I'm not self-aware of my impact on you. That very much could be the situation. We could be in an unhealthy environment and that could build up over time and be putting you under a tremendous amount of stress. So that is a possibility and we need to be aware of that possibility. An alternative possibility could be that my behavior towards you is actually appropriate and not saying perfect, but is reasonable for a situation And you might be, you know, coming from a background where based on past experiences in your own life, you're incapable of handling challenging feedback, or maybe you're under a lot of stress elsewhere. And this aspect of your life has become a source of stress because it could just be, you know, maybe you're in a volunteer role and it's just not going well. And so every time I have to bring something up, even though I'm doing a good job with it, it's provoking something inside of you because that's hitting on some other difficult issues. So in that case, you know, maybe I'm acting very reasonably, but uh, what's painful for you is it's still leading to a negative outcome. Then there's a third scenario that's the most realistic, that it's some blend of those two, where, you know, maybe there's stuff going on inside of you that makes something abnormally difficult, like COVID, like, you know, all the things that we're experiencing as a society, and that I'm also not fully aware, and there's, there's aspects of the way that I'm bringing it up that aren't ideal or best, you know, so that's where this gets so complicated, you know, and if you're ever in a situation, and I've had to do this quite a bit, where you're wading through all of this, typically what you're going to discover is that there's just a lot of factors that influence why we've gotten to a negative point. And that's where we, we all need to use a lot of grace. If you're in a position where you're needing to resolve that in some way, in some kind of oversight role, or even, yeah, any other capacity where you're deciding something, then, you know, I would absolutely just pray for discernment for you. And I think you need to be a great listener and really be able to take time to discern appropriately and ideally with other people who might see it from different angles than just you. But I think for the rest of us, we we have to be really careful because that's probably how the majority of human interactions go. Now, I gave those first two scenarios of a problem where, where I'm the one at fault or make it's mainly you. Those do happen. And that gets into some of what we talked about last week, you know, where there might be a person who there's just a lot going on with them that's not okay, and they're principally the cause of what's happening that's that's leading to pain. And, you know, those are scenarios that we need to act and, and you know, put up some kind of boundary. But I, I would say that I don't believe that those are the majority of scenarios. Most of the time, all of this is layered on top of each other, and that adds to, to the challenge. 
But let's pull back now and take the last little bit of our time today and say, what are the, the social things that are happening under the surface that might be contributing to our collective inability to navigate hard things and maybe some of the extreme reactions that we're seeing? I'm going to throw out three possibilities, and I don't think ultimately any of us know, but these are three things that I, I, would, certainly, um, I would certainly consider. The first is technology, and that is uh, social media and the way that social media is utilized. I think a sec the second is a lot of it, I think, is how um, we raise our children and a culture of safety, or as resources we've addressed in the past, call it even safetyism. And then the third, and this is where I would suggest is the majority of the fault, uh, you know, and maybe some of the challenge in our culture, is the hyper-individualism and the way that people end up isolated and lonely, which if I had to pinpoint any one, I think that's what drives this. And that's just my opinion, and I'm sure there's a lot of research out there that could point to other factors, but I would at least, I would at least call attention to that one, um, because I think that's a defining feature of our society and maybe even up and against other societies that circumstantially face more difficulty but don't seem to have the same emotional problems that we're running into in our culture. And and I would just add, Drew, I'd add a, maybe a fourth, and it kind of dovetails with that last one there, and the, specifically the expressive individualism that Carl Truman talks about in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and this this idea that we we psychologize our identity and our, and our existence uh, subjectively as opposed to understand ourselves ontologically from an objective framework and a lot of big words, but definitely recommend that read. If you haven't picked that up, we've referenced that book before many times, but the psychological nature and, and kind of the therapeutic approach to personhood that we have in the West now, I think is, is it dovetails with that extreme individualism that leads to isolation that you're talking about, Drew. So but why don't you take that first point and talk about maybe how uh, social media and other mediums have changed how we relate and how we uh, how we deal with stress and, and maybe what leads to some of this lack of resiliency. Yeah, I'm convinced we're going to look back on how social media is utilized right now, 50 years from now, and just be shocked. Like our kids will look at how social media is going on and just be like, I can't, I can't believe you guys lived like that because of how profoundly unhealthy it is. I've always, I've equated social media to be like smoking. Maybe a better analogy though would be alcohol, where for some people, it's fine to use in moderation. For other people, based on their past history, they need to abstain from it entirely and never give it to children. I think that's a good way of looking at social media because it's, I'm not saying it's always bad, and I'm also not saying it doesn't have some positive uses, but I think it aggravates and promotes some very unhealthy traits. And you know, some of the statistics of what it's doing to teen girls in particular, um, it's just shocking. It's shocking the harm that it's causing, the pain that it's causing, the some of these underlying psychological issues that are probably there, but it's like the worst possible thing for them. And it's, and you know, nobody seems to be doing too much about it. So I would just say challenge, exhort parents in particular, not even because of your standard moral issues where it's, it's just about, you know, people are going to be exposed to sexualized content or something, which is also <laughs> a great reason to avoid um, overdoing it. But even at a more fundamental level, the way that it teaches us how to have human interaction itself is deeply flawed. So even if you could put good content on there, it's coming through a medium that is rewiring us and how we relate to other people. The Jewish philosopher Martin Buber wrote this pretty short but very influential work where he talks about relationships as being I-thou versus I-it. 
And I, thou, means I'm actually interacting with a person and I am embracing them and really relating to you as another person like me. Whereas I, it, is I'm really relating to an object. And what concerns me so much about social media is we start treating people as ideas or as objects and no longer as people. So when I'm relating to you, Mick, as a person, I'm talking with you, I'm reading your facial expressions, I'm uh, you know, even regulating in a healthy way what I'm saying to you because I, I understand that I have impact upon you and vice versa. And we work stuff out together and you, you do that on an interpersonal level. But in social media, it's actually me versus a screen. So it's a dehumanized process. And some forms of social media, I'm not even seeing a picture of the person. They're an avatar. And so it's promoting the very worst in me because I'm no longer treating people as people, but I'm treating people as objects. And then what's being reinforced is echo chambers where you tend to congregate around people who think like you do and only think like you do. And so you get this distorted view of the world. And then it can promote all kinds of unhealthy reactions you know, whether that is the comparison, the jealousy, the insecurity that comes from it, as well as an inability to think critically because so much of it becomes around this very narrow ideological tribe that you're signaling your support with and that's giving you positive reinforcement. And you're starting to treat whoever doesn't fit that as some type of enemy. And that could be on the political left, the political right, or some other random special interest where people find each other on the internet and they're no longer forced to go talk to real people in the real world. And I'm not saying there's no interaction, but it, it's minimized at least. The typical human interaction of interacting with people who just think differently and are different than you that force you then to refine and develop and mature your own thought processes. And, and so on the one hand, for a lot of especially teenagers at a very critical time in life, something is actually rewiring your brain and how you relate to people. And then on another hand, it's reinforcing unhealthy traits in how we do human interaction in the first place by its very medium. Now, I don't think you can blame technology. Typically, technology is a magnifying glass on what's going on underneath. And so that's where it's probably better to focus on these other two. Um, the second point, you know, I know you and Steph hit this, Mick, on the episode he did on um, some considerations for parenting, and we've referenced this at times, but it's the way that we are raising our children. There are many voices now, and many of them, both uh, Christian and secular, just saying that we're, we're not actually teaching children young enough to take responsibility and confront risk. Um, I read this really interesting, I, it was probably the BBC, uh, but some, some British news source was talking about how there were parks, because of this you know, overemphasis on safety, there were some parks that were starting to intentionally add thorns, heights, other things where kids could get hurt. Not, not to the point where they're like seriously injured, but to where they would experience some pain. Because part of it's like, it's actually good to learn that thorns don't feel good, you know? And basically you, you fall into a thorn bush once and you never do it again. It's like that idea of part of how you learn is you have to learn through trial and error. And if we, you know, have kids in padded rooms all day, then you actually don't learn some pretty critical skills until you're older when the stakes get a lot higher for learning some of those things. So like risk reward, or how do you negotiate relationships in a group of kids without parental involvement, you know, where one kid's being selfish? And there's some really important interpersonal skills that happen in those environments. And, and of course, there's negative, there's bullying and all that. So I'm not saying parents shouldn't have any involvement. But I think there's a, you know, pretty growing awareness that we're actually depriving children of a critical part of their childhood by forcing them to confront things that are difficult, work through it, get to the other side. Because the more that you do of that, the more confidence you build, which then enables you to take on difficult things later. 
So we're both old millennials, and I think some of these parenting traits probably missed us, you know. So I think there's certain elements of uh, anybody under the age of 40 that we share, but then there's, you know, this little window where I don't know that some of this hit full steam. So I just was reflecting on my own childhood. You know, I, I turned 16, and within a couple of weeks, I had a trailer hooked up to the back of the vehicle I was driving because I was running a lawn mowing business, and I was driving all over the city with a trailer. And I, you know, it was then, I think the summer, I before I turned 18, I went on a road trip with two friends to Chicago from Kansas City. And then the next summer, I think I went, you know, it was, I can't remember the sequence of all of it, but it was like when I was 17 and still in high school, I was like taking road trips for 10 hours in the car by myself with friends and, you know, just things like that. And I'm not saying that that's what parents should do, but I, you know, I remember as a 16 year old spending time in another country where part of that time I was there with my family, but was off on my own during the day, you know, in these neighborhoods and, you know, stuff I look back on, it's like no cell phones, you know, I didn't have the technology, but because I was forced to do all of that, it actually gave me a lot of confidence where I could be off on my own and just not be insecure about that. So I'm not saying that's what every parent should do. There's probably some of the stuff I did I wouldn't let my parent, my kids do. But I think there is this recognition that if we don't allow people to confront difficult things and even face some consequences for their actions when they're young, then the older you get, the more difficult those things become. And then the stakes get a lot higher because we, we haven't developed those muscles early enough. You know, I, I would have been appalled if my parents had ever tried to intervene at my high school with any anything related to my grades is a great example of that. So I just knew I either had to do the work or I was going to fail. And that pressure was actually really great because then as I got older and you're confronted with pressure that nobody can bail you out from, because I'd had this history of facing it, it really helped me. And, if, and you know, I could point out plenty of other flaws in my personality. I don't want to make myself seem like I got it figured out. But I think in this one area, I'm, I'm just super grateful for the way that I was raised because I think it enabled me to confront hard things early, which gave me then confidence later in life. Yeah. And again, recommend going back. And my wife and I did an episode on that and, and really looked at, again, Lukian often hates uh, work and the coddling of the American mind and the three great untruths and some thoughts there related to parenting and parenting styles in the modern age. But yeah, why don't you tackle that last point, Drew, on, on individualism, kind of this rampant, acute expression of individualism in the West today as it contributes to this notion of fragility and lack of resiliency. So this last point, I think, is maybe the most significant. And this gets down ultimately to a core belief that we have in society that we've talked about a lot. But it's this, it's this focus on self where at the end of the day, my life is defined by me. And it's this belief system in our culture that life is about being true to yourself. And ultimately, internal to you is this path to thriving. What happens to that is where other people influence you, that's a potential threat where you have this internal path to thriving. And, you know, on a street level, it's like you have this idea of your truth or whatever that might look like. And then somebody else comes along and they don't see it the same way or they don't understand you the way that you understand yourself. And so instantly there's conflict. And as you get into conflict, then in order for us to pursue our own internal path to thriving, we actually are forced to put up walls in the relationships around us. The downside of that is if you do that long enough, then you don't really have any close relationships around you. And there's this belief that we have that safety is found by retreating into the self. And you know, relationships have the potential to be painful. The longer you live, the more stories and people you run into and you realize no one's perfect and a lot of people are pretty flawed. And the closer you get to them, the more their flaws impact you. 
And whether that's your family, whether that's your church, your marriage, your friends, your work, whatever the case may be. And if we keep following the belief systems of our culture, we gradually withdraw or hold those relationships at an arm length, or they get to a certain point where the work necessary to maintain the relationship is, is simply too great and it's infringing upon our sense of happiness and internal sense of peace. And so we continue to put up walls. Well, at the end, what happens is we become lonely. And that is the great danger with this, because I would argue that however difficult it is to work through human relationships, it's so worth it because human beings were made to be in relationship. We need family, we need friends, we need churches. And you know, yes, it's gonna be painful and probably some of the most tremendous sources of pain in your life will come at the hands of people that you're the closest to. And that's just what it means to be human. But the alternative is to be alone. And that's infinitely worse. So if we want to have people that do have resiliency and are able to navigate difficult things and, you know, maybe even to take it further, that are confident enough and strong enough and at peace enough to where they can even navigate other people's significant flaws, then we're going to have to have a commitment to working things out together in relationship and a grace and a willingness to see it all the way through so that we can get to the other side of it. Now, the positive thing is like any challenge in life, once you've done it a few times, you build up a confidence and then you're able to continue to do it. And so you don't fear conflict as much. You don't fear a challenging conversation as much or a confrontive conversation as much. You're able to receive somebody else's feedback for you. Um, you're able to forgive. You know, The more that you do those things, the more easily it is you'll find it to be to do those things in the future. And then that then sets the foundation for healthy relationships and ultimately a healthy community, whether that's the small community of a family, a church, or, or more broad than that. And I am, I am convinced that we have to make a commitment to do that hard work. Now, I recognize there are outlier situations, and I addressed some of that last week, where you have a person that's unwilling to work with you, or you have a person where they're so far out there and uh, maybe the way that they're relating and the pain that it causes where you need to put up a boundary. And so I acknowledge those situations and I imagine that, that you know, a good number of us listening have at least one of those in your life. And I'm so sorry. I know how painful those are and, and recognize the importance of um, sometimes taking some stronger steps in those situations. So that, that's the balance to what I'm saying. But even while I acknowledge that and respect the need to at times create some distance or put up boundaries, I would also in the same breath say we can't project that onto all of our relationships. That needs to be something that we do in exceptional circumstances that require it, and we do it carefully while the majority of life needs to continue to be working things out, looking internally to see where am I contributing to a negative, com a negative conversation or relationship, uh, repentance, forgiveness. You know, all of these things have to become our toolkit. And even as we do have to occasionally address something that's more complex or difficult. So what's underneath all of this is this individualistic idea that my goal in life is perfect self-expression and that I need to be free to pursue that no matter the cost. I, I think instead our goal in life needs to be loving Jesus and healthy relationships and service to others. And that's what I pursue at all costs. And at times that means that somebody else's sense of truth is going to infringe upon my sense of truth. And I think, praise God for that, because I don't see things perfectly. And I'm actually grateful when somebody sees something different than me and is able to challenge me. Um, at times, it's going to mean that I'm going to be forced to confront my own personality flaws that I would rather not confront. And it might even affect my confidence and my self-confidence temporarily. But once again, praise God for that, because that then gives me the opportunity to grow and mature as a person so that I can in turn love other people better. And likewise, what it means is at times I'm going to have to confront those same things in other people. 
And I hate doing that. I don't think anybody likes doing that, or I hope they don't. You know, and I, I, I'm somebody I really respect one time said it. That's actually one of the most pure, loving things you can do because you're willing to risk being misunderstood or somebody getting upset with you, and you're doing it out of love for their sake because they need to be able to see the impact of their behavior on you or on somebody else. So confrontation isn't front, but it's necessary, and it's actually a very healthy part of relationships. And so it's worth it. It's worth it to do these things so that we can maintain strong communities and in the end, recognize that all of us are flawed. All of us are going to make mistakes in relationships. All of us are going to hurt somebody else. All of us are going to be a part of things that, at least for some season of time, aren't going to feel worth it because they're adding to our stress and that you know, you're lying awake thinking about a conflict you've had or that kind of stuff. And I would just challenge that it's still worth it to work it out, to get to the other side, so that ultimately we, we are able to maintain healthy communities. And I, I think the, the danger that is confronting us, that is so rampant in our world right now is loneliness. And the damage that loneliness causes is exceptional. And I think a lot of the trends that I referenced earlier where the life expectancy in the United States is declining and it's, be, it's all self-inflicted addiction, self-harm. You know, I, I don't know that you can say loneliness is the cause for all of that, but it certainly is a major cause for it. I think you could probably make the same case for some of the increase of various mental health disorders. Again, I can't, you can't say it's the cause for all of it, but I th- certainly think you can make a strong argument that it's a significant driver. These things come when we get isolated and end up alone, and we need to be willing to recognize that relationships are needed and worth it. Let me end with this thought is, you know, today as we're talking about fragility or lack of resiliency or whatever term you want to put in there, I would imagine that a, a good number of us listening, you might recognize that's you, you know, and you you look at that. And, and I hope and pray that this podcast episode is not a source of shame. And I, you know, the great thing is we've talked about a lot is the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus. You know, these things are real. And I have tremendous faith that if you look at yourself and you think, I I don't have this, please don't make that a place of discouragement, but just another point of healthy self-awareness. And, and, you know, that's maybe a a trend in all of these episodes the last several weeks is is a call to self-awareness. And just the act of being aware that that's where you're at is a great first step. And then what you can do with that is pull in some people and and recognize, you know, maybe in conflict scenarios or difficult conversations, have the self-awareness to recognize that maybe some some place of, a, of relational fragility is in the background of that. And for some people, I mean, there's great reasons why you have that. Maybe you at some point in life were abused or had, had something happen where you abandoned or, I mean, tremendously painful things that it's no wonder that we deal with some of these problems. Um, so there's no shame in that, but we do need to have self-awareness. And then when we have that self-awareness, then we can approach hard situations, recognize that it's there, ask our community for support in those areas, ask people for grace, uh, you know, just uh, not not as an excuse, uh, but just saying, hey, this is something I recognize I struggle with and I'm going to do my very best, but I want you to know where I'm coming from and I would just ask for your grace here. Uh, you know, these are the types of things that we're able to do that I have found lower a lot of tension in difficult relational circumstances. And when we can just own our stuff, recognize where we're coming from, recognize maybe some of our propensity and weakness then allows us to approach a relationship much more healthily. When we're not self-aware, then what we tend to start doing is blaming others. And it becomes about their flaws and their faults. You know, we end up projecting out the stuff that's going on inside of ourselves, and that's going to make it almost impossible to sort through relational difficulty when we grow into a habit of doing that. So there's no way I can know every situation. And, you know, I, I want to end this where we started, just the recognition of all the complexity of the stories that are out there 
you know, hopefully we've acknowledged and tried to balance out maybe some of what's being shared. And looking at this both from a macro trend perspective, but then recognizing that it always gets pulled into personal story. And so, I, you know, as we end this episode and this broader discussion, just pray for the grace of God, the peace of God, the discernment, the leadership of the Spirit, and, and pray for each one of us that we'd have godly community that helps us sort out some of these issues as we seek to navigate these times. It's great, Drew. Thank you for prepping the content for the last several episodes as these topics have related to one another. And and again, if you haven't gone back and listened to the last couple of episodes leading up to this one, these all work together in terms of the content all builds and definitely recommend you go back a couple episodes and, and get caught up. But again, thank you, Drew, for doing the work to put this uh, these thoughts together. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on Ideology. Jewish philosopher named Martin Buber, who, Buber, Buber, Buffer. <laughs> Buber. I'd probably go with Buber just for. <laughs> the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. <laughs> Buber. <laughs> that can't go in the outtakes.